Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss the macro and market views of the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as those of our third-party asset manager partners, along with considerations when it comes to asset allocation. Uh, Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas. We're excited to welcome back to the podcast as well, Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Rick serves as BlackRock's Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income, Head of the Fundamental Fixed Income Business, and Head of the Global Allocation Investment Team. So with that, Jason, Rick, it's great to be with you both. A lot to talk about these days. So thank you for dropping by and for sharing your insights with our listeners and our clients. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be here, Dan. So as alluded to, there is, of course, a lot to cover this week, in particular, a a timely week that we're all getting together. But it might be helpful to start with the U.S. economy, Rick, which has showed some considerable resilience in avoiding a recession. What might be the likelihood of a potential timing of a recession as we move further into 2023 and perhaps even into 2024? Great. Thank you. And then again, thanks for having having me on this. So, you know, I'll start with a couple of things, you know, you know, I would say for the first part, I think the uh, I think the definition of recession. I think we may be, and I've seen calculations including GDI estimates of GDI versus GDP, that we may be in a recession now, and and or, you know, we're going into recession. And I'm, I'm just from an investment point of view, I'm just not sure that it's that relevant. From a, uh, a listen, the economy's slowing. I don't mean to suggest it's not slowing. But a recession augurs this, my God, what do we do? And, you know, I think I have to put in perspective that we, we operated nominal GDP at about 11% a couple of years ago. And nominal GDP has been operating at a pretty good level. So if we pull back a bit, I'm just not, not that worked up about it from, a, from an economic point of view. The second thing I would say is, you know, I study, we spend a lot of time studying the hard data. And the hard data is pretty good. It's these surveys, whether it's ISM or PMIs or the new MISH or what have you, that are, that suggests, oh, my God, you know, sentiment's really bad. Listen, I've, I've said this on one of these monthlies. I think, I, think the, um, I think people are in a bad mood, but they keep spending. And, you know, if you break down the data, you still have an unemployment rate that's 3.7%. You've got wages growing over 4%. You have over 10 million jobs open in the country, in the, in the country which I think is durable because I don't think you still haven't fulfilled the leisure and hospitality jobs, which are big, big employment um, numbers. Healthcare and education, you're still below the trend line. So I actually think you'll still have an employment. I, again, I don't mean overstated. Unemployment, I think, is going to move moderately higher, not to the fence you know, where they've suggested it's going to go to. But I think the consumer's in pretty good shape. As long as the Fed doesn't go too far and doesn't bludgeon the real estate market, the housing market, I think consumers are in pretty good shape. Then you go to government spending, you know, post the debt ceiling, um, and you've got over $300 billion slated on infrastructure spent over the next four years, IRA, CHIPS Act, et cetera. Government spending is, is going to be supportive. Corporate investment is not showing. You know, you've got a deglobalization going on. And so we take corporate spend and the amount that's going into R&D. We spend too much time talking about AI, et cetera. But if you break down corporate CapEx, it's not slowing uh, of any significance, deglobalization, investment in AI, investment in clean energy that's happening in Europe, U.S., et cetera. So anyway, a long way of saying 
you know, I think the Fed has, um, you know, clearly moved rates to a restricted level. It, I don't mean to suggest the economy's not slowing. It is. But I think we're going to approach a point where, you know, the Fed, the New York Fed's on this analysis of R-star versus double R-star, and, you know, the equilibrium rate for the economy versus the equilibrium rate for the financial system. And I think we're at the point today they got to be sensitive to the, um, the equilibrium rate on the financial system, which is much lower than I would argue it is for the economy, and such that I don't think they're going to I don't think they're going to keep moving enough to really hit the economy because of what it does to the uh, to the financial system. So anyway, I'll stop there. I, again, I don't mean to overstate it that you know the economy is moderating, but I uh, I just went through a bunch of companies in retailing and otherwise, and if you look at these consumption numbers, yes, they're slowing more so in some places, but you look at uh, look at others, it's still pretty good. Well, Rick, thank you for sharing your thoughts there as a starting point. As you alluded to, there's, of course, a lot there that we could dig a bit further into as we make our way through the conversation, though, Jason, do want to get your thoughts as to how the chief investment office, how you're characterizing this health of the U.S. economy at the moment. I know we spoke a bit about this during our CIO strategy snapshot conversation earlier this week, but would you like to expand a bit as to where you see the economy headed from here and the potential timing of a recession? I'll pick up on first one thing that, that Rick mentioned, like what people seem depressed, but they're still spending, you know, you know, maybe because they're depressed, they are spending. But at the same time, it's a little bit of, you know, it's important to look at what people are doing and not what they're saying, because there definitely is, continues to be a disconnect between hard economic activity versus various sentiment measures, whether it's consumers and households, you know, business leaders, uh, you know, think investors. Um, so it's like, you know, it feels like there's a disconnect, you know, and it's kind of that kind of disconnect has been relevant in the data for now, like almost a half a decade or more. So that's that's one thing. Another point I'd sort of you know, pick up on that, that Rick mentioned is, you know, like almost like defining what is a recession, like, you know, and in some ways, the, the notion of a big, broad recession where everything is contracting is, is you know, may not be applicable this time. Uh, instead, we might have something more like kind of rolling recessions where different parts of the economy go into contraction while other parts don't, and you net it all out, and we actually stay in kind of positive growth territory. You know, if, if you look at the manufacturing sector, industrial production is either contracted or it's kind of outright, you know, getting close to contraction. Certainly survey data would suggest the, the manufacturing industry is, you know, is if not in recession, certainly very close to it. This is something similar to what happened in 2015 and 2016 when there was literally an industrial recession in, in the U.S. economy, but the overall economy kind of avoided one because the consumer held up you know, reasonably well. So you, I think this is important in the context of where we had a pandemic where parts of the economy like services were really impacted and parts like goods boomed. It was an uneven story. And the same thing is kind of going on until we kind of fully normalize after all the distortions from the pandemic that, you know, getting a typical recession, just that maybe that's not the case this time. We're going to see different parts of the economy kind of suffer, other parts come out. And that may be one reason why a recession hasn't occurred when it has been sort of widely anticipated now for almost a year. Uh, and if we get something, maybe it's unusually mild just because there'll be enough offsets to kind of keep the, the weak parts of the economy, um, you know, holding off. But I actually want to kind of you know, pivot a little bit and sort of you know, pick up on some comments you made, Rick, and just kind of dive into that a little bit like regarding the Fed. Because we have the Fed meeting tomorrow. We got CPI data today that I think pretty much, you know, barring something surprising, ensures they probably won't hike tomorrow because it, it came in, in line with expectations, like not, not too hot. But I think it kind of begs the bigger question, like what does the Fed do from here? And, and you alluded to the kind of R-star concept, like where policy is neutral, but then this other R-double-star, which is like, well, you know, there's a difference for the economy versus the financial system. 
when you kind of put all this together, like how do you think the Fed is approaching as a, as a framework kind of monetary policy? Are they still focused entirely on inflation? Are they thinking about the, you know, the, the dual mandate? Is there, I kind of think of like maybe like there's a risk management, like they're trying to balance all these things and they sort of, hopefully they kind of do it, but they, there's a risk that they don't. So how do you think the Fed is now trying to conduct monetary policy? So it's great. And I, I, by the way, I agree with the way you framed it. So, so I was looking at, like you said, a CPI report today. So if you look at core goods, six, six month annualized core goods is now two and a half percent. It's down from 13, 13 and a half percent in, uh, in September of 21. So core, by the way, you've had a recent pop. If you look at the, the more recent data, used cars is up. But we think we study all this Mannheim data and all the other data. We, we think used cars are now about to trend quite a bit, quite a bit lower. So, but if you take core goods, two and a half versus 13, you know, core goods is in a pretty good, is in a pretty good spot. It's services that are tricky. And I just want to break this down a bit. So if you take core services, <clears throat> X shelter, and, you know, which is what the Fed has looked at, you know, it's down, today it's at 4.6% down from year on year, down from 6.7, still too high. But it's trending the right way. And, you know, X shelter, you say, well, you know, you could take anything out. But shelter is coming down. It just happens with a lag. And you've seen multifamily come on. And, you know, with, with the rate, with higher rates and mortgage act and uh, housing activity coming, you know, being lower, um, you know, you have to believe shelter is coming down. You have to believe the service is coming down. So I think you're at a place today, the trend, and virtually every graph we look at, the trend in inflation, and particularly the cyclical parts of inflation are coming down. There's a phenomenal piece that um, that, I, that this uh, paper it's, uh, that came out of Brookings, Bernanke and Blanchard, that talked about core goods and then said, you know, the amount of employment you'll have to destroy now to get services down, is it worth it? And I have a very, very strong view that, like you said, around R star, double R star, that A, if we want to bludgeon the housing market, if we want to bludgeon the financial transmission, and if we want to go from, you know, 4,200 banks in the country down to six, then, um, then keep going. I just don't think it's worth it. And I don't think you're going to take enough people out of work um, to bring inflation down without really taking a lot out. And it's just not worth it because you need to have nominal GDP higher for a variety of reasons, including the amount of debt that's on the, that's on the country. So long-winded way of saying I think you've reached a point. We get the bait. Is the Fed going to go in June or July 25? I don't think they're going to go tomorrow, but I think they're going to go in July 25. And then I think they're baked. And I think for for investment, that's a really big deal. If, you know, if that's where they're going to sit for a while. Is if I could say one last thing, I think there's a realization at the Fed, and I think, you know, most places the markets, inflation is going to stay stickier high for a longer time. And I think there's three reasons: demographic. There's not enough labor available for the jobs, means wages stay higher for a longer period of time. Two, deglobalization, as companies build out vertically their supply chains. And then the third, there's global spend on clean energy, military, tech AI, that will keep inflation higher uh, on, the, on the back side of it. The question is, can you tolerate two and a half to three or three-ish for another year or so and it's certainly not without risk, but my guess is that they're willing, they'll be willing to tolerate that because the costs of, uh, of going further are so pernicious that it's worth, you know, you've got a structural issue. And by the way, some of these, if you think about it, the investment in clean energy, the investment in tech AI, 
those will ultimately be disinflationary in many ways, but it takes some time. And so, you know, my guess is that, that they they exhibit a bit of patience in the interim, and you know, at a, at a point that's very restrictive, at a rate that's restrictive today. It's interesting in terms of trying to find kind of parallels to what the the Fed is doing. And for the past year and plus, all sorts of analogies are drawn to like the early 1980s. Uh, you know, and Jay Powell wants to be Paul Volcker. We definitely don't want to repeat the 1970s and have him be Arthur Burns, but I rarely see people refer to the 1990s and the Greenspan Fed, and that's always seems to me like the best parallel. Like, you know, in fact, in fact, like the last year and a half looks a lot like 1994 and so far 1995, an aggressive hiking cycle. The Fed then went kind of into risk management mode of, we'll keep policy but restrictive. In hindsight, they kind of got lucky with kind of what's called opportunistic disinflation. I think the Fed still believes that could take place, but they're willing to kind of let it ride out and then let inflation kind of slowly come down to the 2% target. And, you know, on the whole kind of echoing parallels, like in 1994, that's when Netscape came out with their navigator, kind of opened up the internet. We have ChatGPT. Could this lead to kind of productivity gains, disinflation? Probably not enough for the next six months to make a difference, but sort of kind of over the next, you know, you know, five to 10 years, certainly possible. You know, it's not a perfect parallel. There's, there's definitely, you know, differences today. You mentioned kind of the labor supply situation is different. But, uh, you know, I'm with you. I think that the Fed does once more, and then they, they kind of go and wait and see mode, and then we'll tinker with rates, maybe cut a little bit, even can raise them later, but later on, depending on how the, the economy, uh, you know, kind of you know, you know, plays out. But there's also another kind of point when you came in terms of the, um, the inflation story, like one of the factors, kind of the labor market, and something I noticed in your, in the deck, I guess your recent deck, which is, is, is titled um, you know, "Getting Paid Back," there was a discussion there about like, labor market dynamics, but also on immigration. And this is something I, I recently kind of came across some data that surprised me by just how much, in the past year and a half, kind of immigration in the U.S. has picked up. And a lot of that, you could say, it was it's all kind of a payback from the like 2020. Uh, you know, when, but because of COVID, the border was restricted. And so maybe we're just kind of like, you know, if that hadn't happened, we're kind of at those trend levels. But it seems like the pace is is higher than it's been in, in more than a decade, which when you think about, well, that could be like an extra 70,000 essentially workers or people of working age coming into the labor market every single month. Yeah, that to like domestic population growth. So suddenly you can get, you know, an employment gain of 150,000, let's say, per month, which is something that that actually has to me like almost profound implications for the labor market story, inflation story for the cycle. I don't really see a lot of people kind of talking about it. So when I saw it in your, your deck, I was, you know, like this sort of resonating with me. I guess, how do you think about that? Is this something that you think is significant, underappreciated, or is it just like this was been a, a catch up and it's kind of fade? This kind of this immigration part of the labor market story. I think it's huge. I mean, I, by the way, I think it's beyond a uh, beyond a domestic story. I think the uh, you know you have the same dynamic in the UK, same dynamic in in Germany. There's a you know as you get outside the U.S., you know migration and there's so many tricky political border issues with migration, immigration. But boy, you talk about we had this epic. Uh, retirement in the United States in you know post-COVID wealth creation, massive amount of people leaving the labor force that are you know above 50, 55 years old. You had, I mean, and so all the replacement has come through foreign worker. And you think about some of the jobs, labor, you know, hospitality, restaurant, uh, airline. A lot of that is solved through immigration. A lot of these with our lower lower income uh, jobs that I think going forward are going to be really hard. You know, we're still well below the trend line in a lot of those jobs, and I think they're hard to fill. I, mean, I gave a presentation to a board 
and uh, Barry, the CEO of a very, very big employer, I was talking about the spend on infrastructure, and, and he said, really, where are we going to get all the people? And, um, and the only place, and by the way, there's an interesting thing with the layoffs. You know, all these layoffs in tech, a lot of these people lose their visa status and have to leave the country. So it actually, you, you exacerbate a, um, an issue um, because of what is inefficient um, you know, border transfer. So I know I think it's a really, really big deal. It's not going to, it's not, it's not going to get solved tomorrow around efficient immigration policy, but it is, it is not just in the U S it is a huge part of how you, uh, how you satiate some of this demand for labor and bring down the cost of labor. Yeah, it's often an underappreciated part of the overall kind of policy story. When we think about fiscal policy and monetary policy, you know, long-term growth is depends on productivity and, and workers. So this is a key part of the equation. Uh, I want to pivot from kind of talking about the macro, the outlook to to the markets, uh, and going back to you know your your uh, your presentation of you know, getting paid back. You know, one of the the key lines in there was that you know investors this year have sort of rediscovered the fundamental or one of the fundamental tenets of investing is that you know you actually want to get paid back, and that's certainly been true. I know we talked to our clients and you know people you know the temptation is like I'll sit in cash on the sidelines, earn five plus percent. Why do I need to take uh, you know kind of equity risk? Uh, and so I think there's a lot of logic to that. That's kind of part of one of our key messages, you know, like, you know, you manage liquidity, but also buy quality bonds. It's one of our messages in focus. But it almost feels like in the past couple of weeks, two, three weeks, there's been a, a change as the markets have kind of equity markets, at least in the U.S., have melted up a little bit once the debt ceiling were resolved. And it almost feels like, and I've seen people use the term, like there's been a focus all year long on return of capital. And now return on capital becomes like, you know, you go from one and to have cash and get your money back to now, like, well, now I actually need to get some sort of return and equities maybe can give me that return. Has your thinking at all changed from, you know, even just a couple of weeks ago, given sort of what's going on in the markets? Is the crux of that piece is still applicable? And, and maybe how how is it sort of evolving as well as the markets and sort of the economic environment is, you know, almost shifting, you know, on a week by week or month by month basis? So so I'm going to take one thing that's embarrassing and that uh, – <laughs> I've, I've gotten more enthusiastic about the equity market as I've gotten longer through luck. And, and that is, uh, you know, we're running, you know, I think, I think there's still risk in the world. And, um, you know, we're running a lot of income in our portfolio, saying higher quality assets, staying in, in, you know, keeping our total return in decent shape by staying in front end, in front end yields. But the volatility equity market drops so crazy low that we keep buying call options on the equity market and substituting Delta, you know, Delta one into uh, or outright equity position into call options. And, uh, you know, one thing I've learned about, about markets, you know, doing this for three and a half decades, you know, the technicals matter more than the fundamentals for in the short term. And it's a pretty incredible thing in equities. And part of why we got longer through using Paul is the, uh, you know, you don't have an IPO calendar. In fact, you have one today that we're, uh, we're buying. You haven't had any, any issuance. Companies are buying back their stock. You know, all our competitors are, are not all, but many are underweight equities. The um, hedge funds are underweight equities. And all it takes is a little bit of money coming in, and uh, and the market can can rally. And uh, if the technicals are pretty incredible, and the ball is so low that uh, you could do call spreads and create some convexity on the upside. Do I think multiples in the equity market are, are cheap? Definitely not. Um, but I think the technicals are, are, are good. And, you know, I think we, we put this in this monthly. You know, there's one thing about building, you know, I think today building a barbell in the portfolio, meaning you can carry really, really well and sit in a lot of low-risk assets. 
And then there's some places to try and generate some return. And I would say equities over the long run, you know, will do their thing. And the compounding effect that you can absorb some contraction of multiple as long as you believe you're going to compound earnings and cash flow over the coming years. And then the second thing, there are parts of things like EM where you're getting paid for taking taking yield in the portfolio. So, you know, we've been more inclined to run uh, to run a barbell. But make sure you're carrying really heavy and using more convexity than um, in uh, in your in your equity portfolio than uh, than otherwise. You know, I can say just one last thing. You know, the, the comments you made that I thought were, were, were spot on. You know, we're going through this extraordinary productivity increase, and you know, the equity market is you know it's not really up that much or virtually at all. But this extraordinary concentration of uh, you know these big companies, you know, I think Tesla's an energy company, uh, and I think that proved out you know this week, you know, that, um, you know how they how they will turn on these superchargers. Um, the incredible dynamic Nvidia is a, is, a, is a specific story, but you, but if you take the Microsoft implementation and Apple, and there's some uh, pretty incredible things going on with these companies' ability to. Uh, you know, to grow cash flow and, and operate from here. And so the multiples become not that scary um, that you can push the, push the market higher. So there are a couple of follow-up questions that, like, you know, regarding the technicals. We've seen it, well, it feels increasingly so. Like there's, there's a whole community of investors, systematic investors, hedge funds that, you know, will have shorter investment horizons. Um, and when they get positions extreme one way or another, like, really light positioning once they start to get at risk that can drive the markets higher and vice versa if it gets kind of pushed over the edge which seems a little bit different with this let's call the past month of the markets moving higher is that's you know been at work but it feels like it's more like kind of long only type of investors who have been kind of waiting for a bit of a pullback to buy they have it and now they feel like yeah they have to that exposure they might be doing call options as, as you're doing it, I'm trying to gauge like how much more though this from a technical perspective could go on. How and like that's like no one knows the answer, but it's a little bit like is this because these things typically you know maybe three four weeks six weeks and then they kind of peter out and then it kind of goes too far. But this feels like there's, there's could go on well into the summer. Um, so I, I don't know how do you do you think this is like still really early innings or is this kind of like okay it's going to run its course and in a couple of weeks it, it'll peter out. So, so I saw so the the average mutual fund active mutual fund is 721 basis points underweight those seven stocks, and I, I do think there's a little bit of that short covering that that can continue for a bit of for a bit of time. I also just think there are no sellers. Like I, you know, <laughs> like you market can be priced wrong, but if there are no sellers and you just get this this six trillion of money in money market funds, that um, you know if all you get is a little is some incremental or 401ks from there with no selling. Then it can go on for a little bit of time. Can I throw out one thing? Because I thought what you, what you said is really important. We are draining liquidity, and and so yesterday, and I, I did, if I can, I just want to read this one thing because I think it'll, I think it'll blow you away. On uh, so yesterday, in terms of issuance into the market, so this is in fixed income telling on a Monday morning at 11:30 in the morning, there was 58 billion 26 week. 26-week bill bill auction, 58 billion 26-week bills. It was at the same time at 11:30 in the morning. It was 40 billion of three years. Then we waited an hour and a half to one o'clock. We then we issued 32 billion of 10-year notes, and at the same time at one o'clock we did 65 billion of 13-week bills. Meaning between 11:30 and 1 p.m. yesterday we did 195 billion of treasuries. 
including some real DVO1 when we were issuing 10-year notes. So what, what do you do with that? There is, you know, we've got a, the, the, the system is going to rebuild the Treasury General Account, the TGA. So you're going to train four to 500 billion from that. And then from, from what is uh, postponed spending, you're going to get another 400 billion or so. You know, one thing about markets is pretty incredible. People get sanguine. It's like markets going up. I feel okay. The new issue calendar credit's going okay. And then I think we're going to get exhausted, meaning you can't do that much issuance. You can't drain that much liquidity without having an effect. But it takes, I don't know if you purposely said three weeks, but I think I said exactly that. I think it's something like three to six weeks. Everybody gets complacent. Things feel okay. And then, and then I think people realize that draining liquidity is real. And uh, so I, you know, one man's opinion, part of why I love these call options is you can ride it a little bit and, and you know, your, your outright Delta One expression is, uh, is not that intense. So given that, and sort of then Brandon's back to kind of like asset allocation, what do you do in a portfolio? You mentioned kind of, you know, kind of barbelling. How are you then thinking about within like fixed income portfolios, equity portfolios? When I, and when I look at U.S. equities, it's a bit, I don't know, I, mean, I can't remember another time where, talking about the market feels a little misleading because you have seven stocks that are up an average of 40 plus percent and the rest of the market that up until about a week ago is up, you know, you know, 2%. So it's really two different markets. So given all that, how are you then kind of constructing uh, and allocating within fixed income, but across also kind of, you know, in a multi-asset portfolio? Yeah. So in fixed income, I mean, we're, we're running a lot. I mean, I've been, you know, there's a weird, this CPI report, I don't know if you saw this, but the, uh, I'm sure you did. I mean, the two-year note, I mean, the whole curve was rallying. And I, it was like, it was like, did I get a different CPI print? And then, uh, and then, you know, now we've since backed off. I think the front end has moved 20 basis points from, from the, uh, from the peak today. So, I, I mean, I like buying the front end. It's, you're now pricing in, the two-year note is pricing in, I think, 22 or 23 basis points of a hike. You know, could, could we be wrong for a couple of basis points? Could, let's, let's say, the Fed's going to make two hikes. You know, could we be wrong for 20, 25 basis points in the front end? Maybe, but we can't get carry so well that it doesn't matter. You'll make that back in a, in a couple of months. So I like buying all this investor-grade credit in the, you know, one to three year in the U.S., in Europe, commercial paper that, you know, gets you five and three quarters, six percent. You know, I love buying European investor-grade, one to three year type of stuff gets you six and a quarter, six and a half. And then, you know, we buy an agency mortgages as well, um, you know, because we think rate fall is coming down because we think the Fed is, is largely finished. You know, so, and I think exactly what you wrote in your pieces, you know, I love buying quality income. Do I need to buy on high yield when I get those sort of yields, you know, with the economy slowing and tightening of liquidity? I don't, you know, I don't find it that intriguing. European high yield a bit more. And then, you know, EM, because I think EM started tightening earlier. And, uh, and it's going to start easing earlier. And those yields are super attractive, and, and currency will be okay. So, you know, running more of a barbell with a heavy weighting on, on just getting front end a ton of carry. And then in equities, you know, you know, I like, you know, our view has been, you know, continues to be, I really like healthcare, defense, you know, and then, and then owning parts of tech. And, um, uh, you know, I think this, this AI thing is real. I've, I've, you know, we've converted a lot of that exposure, not just like the NVIDIA, which by the way, we didn't have a lot of NVIDIA on, but the, you know, the, the AMDs, the, um, you know, the Microsoft's is a derivative of that converted into option structures because it's, it's run a long way. And then the only other one, listen, I think is, listen, I think the world is underestimating that, 
not that the economy is not slowing, but you know, I think you know, we look at like some of these airlines. You know, we were talking about on the call recently, we're trading at three to four times cash flow. You know, some of these companies, there are enough companies in that are in the no growth or in a recession mode. You know, parts of retail. I was looking at today. I've even used names, but Dollar General trades are like two to three times cash. I mean, they, they, you know, some of these stocks are pretty interesting. Again, that are, um, like you say, haven't gone up in price or have gone down. That are, um, that are, you know, they've gotten whacked by the idea that the consumer is going to fall off a cliff, which I, I just don't agree with. I think I'm getting much hard thinking is aligned with that. You know, on the fixed income side, kind of the barbell of, you know. I call it sort of the you know, yield and shield, you know, yield from the front end where you can get good uh, good carry without taking either rate risk or interest rate risk. But then also kind of buyer kind of higher quality, longer duration bonds, just as, as kind of the portfolio hedge. If you look at the stock bond correlation, which completely broke down last year and didn't give the diversification, at least for, for a couple of months now, about three months, I think that sort of dynamic is, is back in play. So that's something we've liked. On the equity side, you know, it's a little bit of, you know, the challenge, like, you know, the markets have moved higher. It feels like in some way for the overall market, there's not a great opportunity. But if, if you look at the valuations for areas that are more cyclical, that have underperformed, you could say they are pricing in a recession or at least a mild recession, something like that versus the overall market. You say, well, at 19 times approximately forward earnings, like that doesn't seem particularly cheap. But if you kind of look beyond some of those, those the biggest names that uh, you know people have been kind of talking most about, I think there's a decent number of opportunities. You just have to be a little more kind of selective. And I do fear that just for the markets overall, especially after like you know where we are today, if they're not priced for perfection, like a nice soft landing that Jay Powell is able to land the plane, uh, you know, if any sort of bumps along the way, you know, I think there's there's this sort of an opportunity to, to things for the pullback and the markets. I think it's still ultimately are kind of range bound until we get full clarity on the macro, except the range has clearly shifted higher from what it's been over the past year, which is, you know, low, let's say 37, 3,800 to high of about 42, 43. I think that range just kind of shifts higher, but I think we're still ultimately kind of, you know, range bound. You know, I think there is a, you know, I think you also have to be afraid of, of being the Jay Powell of 20 years. So I'm a big fan of his and respect him quite a bit. But when you keep rates as, as easy as you did for as long as you did and wait too long, and then you shock the system higher and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep going because now I don't want to be Arthur Burns. I mean, the Im- immense financial transmission shock you can create, you know, that, that could be, I mean, you know, Greenspan's legacy was destroyed because he kept rates too early, too easy, too long. Anyway, I just think being, pra- I think this Fed will be pragmatic, and, but I think they're having a real debate today. And I think, I think today and tomorrow, I think they're going to have a real debate about, you know, you see on some, you know, you see Goolsby on one on one side of it, Bullard on the other, and Mester, Mester in the tightening. But I think I have a real debate. But I think they'll come on the side of, you know, let's be let's be thoughtful. We've done a lot of work here before. It does, yeah. Like I think, you know, some people might you know criticize the Fed and say, well, you know, inflation, core inflation is still 5.3 percent, you know, year over year. That's far above target. How can you be stopping, especially with the unemployment rate, you know, near the 50-year low? At the same time. You know, the uncertainties of how all this policy tightening liquidity drain will play out in the economy, and we know it happens with a leg. You know, going, you know, missing one meeting to do a hike is, doesn't seem like it's a bad idea to assess overall the consequences. And I think it's hard to know exactly how the Fed's kind of calibrating it, but you know, in the dual mandate for the past year, it's they can be able to focus unilaterally on fighting inflation. Now, you know, the fact that they wouldn't pause at all, given those conditions, would suggest you know they are putting some weight on the full employment and realize like. 
you know, we don't want to overshoot and cause more pain than is necessary to ultimately kind of get inflation down to a level we're comfortable with in two years. So to me, it kind of argues for some, some prudence, like a risk management approach. Uh, and like, if things don't get better, they can on inflation, they can always continue to hike later on. Now, markets may not like that, but that's, that's you know, their job is to, you know, deal with the economy, not uh, investors, um, as much as we might like them to, to have our back sometimes. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. The next 24 hours will indeed reveal a lot. So, Jason Dreho, Rick Reeder, again, I do want to thank you both for your time today, sharing your insights with our listeners, our clients of UBS, and for uh, joining us once again here on the How Should I Be Positioned podcast. And as is always the case, there is a lot here that we can follow up on, dive deeper into. So looking forward to having you both back at some point for a follow-up, though. Thank you again for your time and participation today. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks, for Alan. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, for joining us for a really interesting conversation, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Bye. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. In providing wealth management services to clients, we offer both investment advisory and brokerage services, which are separate and distinct and differ in material ways. For information, including the different laws and contracts that govern, visit UBS.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, SIPC.